But I tell them we're not here to ask anybody to come up and say they're sorry. We're not here seeking forgiveness from anybody. We're here to honor those that were here. If people fear an Armageddon, it's good to know an Indian. <laughs> you know, if you know where to get roots, if you know where to get berries and fish and water, and it's a very good thing to have people who know how to butcher. Hello, and welcome to the Confluence Podcast. I'm Colin Fogarty, Executive Director of Confluence. We're a community-supported nonprofit that connects people to place through art and education. This episode of the podcast is part two of our first-ever Confluence Story Gathering. It's a live, story-driven conversation designed to elevate indigenous voices in our understanding of the Columbia River system. The discussion is framed by audio excerpts from interviews we conducted with tribal elders and leaders with our partners at Northwest Documentary. This public event was recorded on November 12, 2016 at Tamustalict Cultural Institute on the Umatilla Indian Reservation in Pendleton, Oregon. Before I get to the event itself, I want to take a moment to thank the Oregon Community Foundation for supporting this inaugural series of story gathering events. Thanks also to the Friends of Confluence who made our story gathering interviews possible. Paul B. and Deborah D. Spear, Stephen Jan Oliva, and Broughton Mary Bishop. Part one of this series explored connections to the river. Part two takes a look back at family histories and connections to the ancestors. In this story gathering, you'll hear stories of violence on the Columbia River from Umatilla elder Leah Connor, along with what it was like to follow the traditional seasonal rounds. You'll also hear a devastating story of war from Nez Perce elder Wilfred Scott. The program features an outstanding panel of speakers. Bobby Connor directs the Tomostelict Cultural Institute and is Umatilla and Nez Perce. Patricia Whitefoot is an educator from the Yakima Nation and a member of the Confluence Board of Directors. And finally, Oregon's Poet Laureate and member of the Confederated Tribes of Warm Springs, Elizabeth Woody. They'll all be reacting to audio excerpts from the Confluence Story Gathering interviews. And that's where we begin with Umatilla Elder Leah Connor, who you'll hear in her voice is working her way back from a stroke. I'm Leah Joan Connor from Pendleton, Oregon, and member of the Umatilla tribe. I'm Umatilla, Cayuse, and Nestor's. So we spoke to Leah here at Tomustelict, and she wanted to talk about her grandmother. Now, she told us a, a little bit about the violence that her grandmother witnessed back in the 1870s when she was just 14 years old, and a militia from the Dalles came. Oh, my grandmother was a sweet old lady. Her name was Wyessus. That means stepping high, dancing. Wyessus came to this reservation after the Downs militia. They wanted to get rid of the Indians. So the militia came and threw all their food in the river. And her mother and father were killed. She had a husband, too. He rode off, and she never saw him again. But she was about 14 years old. And her mother told her to get a canoe, and she paddled up to Columbia to where her mother told her where she'd find her sister. And she had an older sister who was married to a French-Canadian. 
And she rode up the river to Boardman, which is now called Boardman, and found a long teepee there. She spent the winter there. And then she went on inland and found her sister at Fort Henrietta. And she married my grandfather, Spokane Jim. Leah went on to describe how her grandmother and other family members lived and how they followed the seasonal rounds in the traditional ways, collecting roots and berries and buying and selling things along the way. And she talked about how her mother and aunts and the pets they took along the way. All summer long, they would take off with their uncle and a father and a sister and Elsie and Vera and dogs and a cat. And the cat rode on my mother's saddle, and the dogs she made boxes for so they could travel and not get sore feet. And they would go to Hetner and start digging roots and go on into the mountains. And they'd stop at Sumter and trade for coffee and sugar. They'd trade what they had made on the way, dear tan hide and made boxes and gloves and things they could sell. This was their life on the seasonal rounds. They collected all their food summertime, and by the time they got to Vail and the Sink River, they would come home with dried fish, dried deer meat, all kinds of roots and berries. And they lived this way all their lives. It was and beautiful how they took care of each other and dogs survived and the cat survived all the way from Hatton to Bale and back. I love that story. Leah's story about her grandmother fleeing a militia is one of many of the stories we heard in these interviews about violence against Native people. Just a warning, we're going to hear a story, a vivid story about violence soon. And this story comes from Wilfred Scott. It's a detailed story about the Battle of Big Hole in Montana. It was in August of 1877. Chief Joseph's band of Nez Perce were on the run from the U.S. Cavalry when the attack began. Scotty told us this story sitting next to his wife, Bessie, who has a personal connection to this battle. This one particular family, they heard their shots, and then they realized what was going on. The soldiers are here. And the woman told her husband, take your your rifle, your shells, and go join the the braves and fight the soldiers. So he grabbed his rifle and his bandolier and he took off. He told her, he says, you get the baby and you go down, down that way and hide in the willows. And he took off out the teepee he went. She started looking all over, looking for the baby, and she couldn't find the baby. And took all the blankets, thought maybe she was hiding Finally, she turned around, she went out the teepee door, and she seen the little girl walking towards the soldiers, and she could see the red from the gun flashes from the rifles, and she could hear them hitting the teepee and whizzing. She went running over to pick up her daughter, and before she got there, the little girl was shot, shot in the hip, and down she went. The mother went over and picked her up, turned around and started running, and then she was shot. The mother was shot in the back and a bullet came out of her breast. And she went down to the willows, took her baby with her, just like she was. No blankets, no nothing, just 
right out of bed they got. While she was in the river, that's where they had to get it, hide under the bank where the willows were leaning over the bank. It was trying to hide under there. And there were other children, and she was gathering these kids, trying to keep them warm and quiet. And she's seen a little boy laying on a sandbar right across from and he was laying there and he was dead. These are the things that she experienced and witnessed. Two days after that particular battle, they drove the soldiers out and they broke camp and were headed south. And two days later, that little girl died. That woman and her husband went on through the rest of the war, all the way from there to the battle at Bearpaw. Both of them went into Canada. They stayed in with Sitting Bull, and later on they came back home. They were river people. Their stories never show up anyplace. And I says, years later, there's a little five-year-old girl that used to play with this old lady. They called her the old lady. And this little girl used to, she's only five years old, but how kids are, she'd jump on her bed, hide under her blankets, and tease them. How do you tease them? In 1938, that old lady passed away. She was 98 years old, and that little girl was five years old. And that little five-year-old girl was her, my wife. That old lady that was wounded and that lost the little girl was her great-grandmother. Scotty and Bessie have actually devoted a big part of their life to organizing memorials for tragedies like this in the past. And in fact, every year, Scotty and a group from the Red Heart Band of Nez Perce come to Fort Vancouver in Washington to remember how their ancestors were taken prisoner and held there for a year. And a child died during that imprisonment. Every time we do these memorials, one of the first thing I tell the people, I, I tell them while we're there, and I say, today we come, you know, we return here, and I tell them why, and I give them a little history of what happened there way back when. But I tell them we're not here to ask anybody to come up and say they're sorry. We're not here seeking forgiveness from anybody. We're here to honor those that were here 139 years ago, or whenever the time may be. When we honor them, we honor ourselves. So what role do these stories play in our lives today? Well, the, <clears throat> Scotty's point about the oversimplification of um, the Nez Perce War is one we wrestle with routinely. That's Tomustalik Cultural Institute Director Bobby Connor. Not only at work, but in our, our, our families, because it's one big lump, the Nez Perce. Um, and yet the war in 1877 included Palouse and Cayuse peoples and the White Bird Band and the Joseph Band and the Looking Glass Band. And, and I guess I would say to you that what we keep trying to tell people, and they're not quite sure what we mean, but if history were more accurate, it would be really hard for you with English tongues to pronounce because, <laughs> because it would be about the peoples whose bands were involved and whose families were involved. And there were no surnames. But there were identities, the people of the Aspens, the people of the Tamaracks, the people of the Willows. And these various bands were not nation states. They were not one big lump of people. Um, and so the people who were in the Nez Perce War, the Cayuse Wars, the Yakima Wars, were not just Cayuse, not just Yakima, not just Nez Perce. We're all related up and down this river. And I guess what it reminds me of, for most 
people, we want to start by telling them that in our culture, there was a very strict taboo about marrying close relatives. Now, the trappers and traders that came here went back to England and married their first cousins. In our culture, that was not allowed. We selectively bred horses. We understood something somehow about genetics. And so you did not marry closer than a fourth or fifth cousin removed. And so by virtue of those rules, we didn't marry close. So we had to be related for thousands of years up and down the Columbia River. Uh, Otherwise, we'd be breaking our own laws. So today, when we talk about the violence, I think some people, and I guess it depends on the occupations people have, whether they hear historical trauma, some people hear um, war stories and think about the fact that most of the books were written by the victor, not the conquered, so to speak. Um, Most of us would argue none of us were ever conquered. But I think as a descendant of, of the Joseph Band, as a descendant of people in, those, in many of those wars, including the Cayuse Wars, I think the thing that we most have to pay heed to often is the sacrifices that have been made so that we could still be here. There was enormous sacrifice by men and women, young people, old people. Scotty did not tell uh, the story that I think is probably one of the most tragic stories of the Nez Perce War. For fear of the people being discovered, a mother smothered her own child. And that happens in other wars, not just in Indian wars. Mm -hmm. And so I think the thing that I try to remember is that we, we try to remind ourselves that what's good in our people is our humanity. And what's good about us is that it's, it's good to be a good human. And it doesn't matter the color of your skin. The blood's pretty much all red. <laughs> but the, there are good people in our, in our history. And those good people made really difficult decisions. They made difficult decisions at war. They made difficult decisions at peace. And for those of us who are inheriting some of this knowledge, I think the thing that it means to me is that we have to keep telling these stories. The story my mother cherishes about her grandmother, um, it, people need to know that someone canoed up the Columbia River alone at the age of 14 so that we could be alive. And it's a great debt of gratitude we owe these ancestors who did very difficult things so that we could be here. And I think, you know, for me, that's the, that's the focus, not the violence, but the sacrifice. I come from uh, several lines of people and Navajo side was a long walk. Elizabeth Woody, Oregon's Poet Laureate. And a lot of the Diné people choose not to talk about that or commemorate it because it was such a hard, hard, hard walk. And then, you know, on the Wasco side, they marched people from Cascade Locks, you know, up, up the river and down through Thai Valley, gathering village after village and taking them to Warm Springs, where we ended up in the lower part of this territory that we, we had. But the thing that's really hard to deal with is when your ancestors did have to fight and did have to kill. And uh, hearing about it as an adult is really hard. I don't think I could hear it as a child. Yakima educator Patricia Whitefoot. So I just want to speak to 
you know, a little just about the wars. And I um, have an aunt who's, you know, quite old now. And when she talks about the wars, she also talks about uh, the role of women in wars as well. And when you think about food gathering as well, I appreciate the story that Leah shared because it's a story, it's my own life growing up as a child and being a, a traditional food gatherer. But we had to, you know, survive, and that was our way of surviving. But when, but when we think about, you know, war or just, uh, I think, just um, people who may uh, be around you when you're out food gathering, the women always had to be vigilant also because of the foreigners that were on our land. And so our behavior uh, as, is a result of that, is being very mindful of anyone, anybody foreign around us when we're out gathering food. Whether that means we're out gathering you know, uh, roots or for out berry picking or for some of our women who are fishermen, fisherwomen. My mother was a fisherman woman on, on the Salilo Falls and my sister on the Klickitat. And so when we think about you know, aggression, I guess, and not so much war, but just aggressive behavior around us, we, we become so vigilant about what's going on, but yet we also know we have to survive too. And our traditional foods and medicines are, are important to us and a valued resource for us. And our, our food gathering didn't just occur just around here, it also occurred over the coastal area as well. Because when we start thinking about the names of some of the places and locations, those, you know, people from uh, the Seattle area ask my aunt about names from over in the Seattle area, and she can interpret what the meaning is or where the history of, you know, Seattle comes from. The people say Chief Seattle, but she gives a whole interpretation and the mountains as well. And so everything about our, our way of life is just really rooted in who we are and when, where we come from. But also we're a migratory people too, and I think we forget that you know we had to survive, and we knew where to go, as was shared in the story that Leah shared. It wasn't unusual for us to have animals. For me, growing up as a child, I grew up in a place called Medicine Valley. My animals were my my lifeline. My horse was my lifeline. I could just you know my grandfather would go out hunting out. It was like in the back. We lived at the foothills of the mountain, so all he had to do was just jump on the horse and go out. And so I did that too. I just jumped on the horse and took off. And so, you know, it's just simply a way of life and one that I cherish and continue to share with my children, grandchildren, and all the children in the longhouse because it's important. And we know how to, you know, to, you know, to know what type of food to gather and when to gather as well. And so that's important knowledge, but our children aren't necessarily acknowledged for that once they begin learning them and learning the specific ceremonies and songs and the history about those medicines. And so that's what, you know, we're taking it upon ourselves to be able to do that and share that with one another. I'd also like to add that the amount of memory that people had to have for all of this is, was critical. My grandfather's great-great-grandfather was actually recorded recounting the treaty that was the false treaty. And he did it verbatim from memory of who mm-hmm. spoke at this time, right. who said this, who signed that. And I was just amazed. One of the, we've been visiting with visitors for 18 years here in this museum. And one of the things we've, amongst ourselves, we wonder about is non-Indian fascination with Indians. 
We wonder about that sometimes, partly because of the questions we get. Um, some of them are really interesting. Some of them, it's just the way they're asked. <laughs> but, but, you know, and we don't mean to make fun, but I think that one of the things that we, we were talking about it and what Patsy uh, mentioned, it was, I think, is a part of it. What we found is that a lot of people who come here know that somewhere in their family tree, somewhere way back in the woodpile, there's an Indian. And there was a time when nobody was proud of that. There was a time when it was really good because of exclusion laws, especially in the West, for white to be on your birth certificate, as if white is a race. (laughs) Um, uh, Or as if anybody is actually white. Um, But it was an interesting thing because it meant that you could have a job, you could own property, you could run your own affairs. Um, So there was, there's a history to that. And the other thing that we have kind of come, some of us have come to conclude, and I confess that it it has, you know, I thought about it when Y2K was facing us and I was living in the Sacramento Valley. When people were fearing Y2K and what was going to happen to banking and groceries and everything. I thought, I'll just go home. I mean, you know, it's like I've, I knew all the ways to get home, and I just thought, I'll go home. I know where there's wood. I know where there's water. I know where there's meat. And, I, and that's what we've come to conclude is that I think that if, if people fear an Armageddon, it's good to know an Indian. <laughs> you know, if you know where to get roots, if you know where to get berries and fish and water... And it's a very good thing to have people who know how to butcher. So my mother's saying she wants me to tell you that um, our uncle, who was in the European theater in World War II, um, they got a radio call down from a villa um, during a pause in the war. And a lot of officers were at this villa, and they had not only fresh eggs, but apparently there was beef. And the radio call came down and asked if anybody in the battalion knew how to butcher and of course, Uncle Don did. And so they brought him up in a Jeep, and he was up there, I think, a couple days, saw how the other half lived. Um, but they brought him up there because he could butcher anything in the field. He could clean and cut and slice and dice and fillet. And that was World War II in Europe, and here we are in 2016. And when people talk about having local food sources, we still have local food sources that don't require a truck to get and don't have to be bought at the grocery store. And it, it's not really so much a joke. I mean, I think we're, we're serious about it. It's not a bad thing to know people who know how to survive. That's a really important thing, especially when we, live, when we think we're living in scary times. So I wonder if we could go off script for just a moment. And Bobby, when we interviewed you, you told us a story about a question that Maya Lin asked you at a meeting here. Do you remember the story that I'm talking about? Um, after we'd met for about an hour and a half with Maya on the patio with this group of elders and they were all leaving, she asked me, why are they not more angry? Where is the rage? She said, if what happened to your people had happened to me, I just don't think I could be so polite and so gracious. And I said to her, they know something you don't know. We're never leaving. We've We've endured a lot. We've survived a lot, and it doesn't matter how bad it is. The conclusion to the story is always we're never leaving. That gives you some peace of mind.
Thanks for listening to part two of the Confluence Story Gathering, recorded at the Tomustalik Cultural Institute in Pendleton, Oregon. Sarah Fox is our sound engineer. The event crew also included Karina Bennett, Lily Hart, Megan Stetzik, and Courtney Gilk. In part three of this series, we'll explore connections to future generations. I said, God, they'd like to do studies on our people. I said, I wish they'd conduct a study of what we did so wrong to be punished with their presence. Hey, turned out that my youngster. Did you ever stop to think? Maybe he sent them over here for us to teach them. To find out more about the work of Confluence and our project sites along the Columbia River system by Maya Lin, check out our website, confluenceproject.org. Remember, Confluence is a community-supported nonprofit. We can only do this work of connecting people to place through art and education because of the generous support from the Friends of Confluence. Please join us today at our website, confluenceproject.org. Thanks 